So I was sitting down yesterday in the coffee shop, sitting down to start writing uh, the sermon for this morning, and I had this great introduction written, and it was just amazing. And I thought, nobody's going to be able to get past the introduction. That's like, we're just going to get stuck on how great this is. And so then I thought, I better change that. And uh, so I decided to, to, to begin to think about what my first job was. And not, and not just what my first job was, but what my starting salary was. So my very first job I've ever had, um, I was a paper boy. Like old school, ride your bike, throw the paper at the door, paper boy. Um, which seems like a really good idea when you're 14 and you're like, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to deliver papers. And I'm going to ride my bike and, until it's like cold and rainy and snowy. And that just meant that my dad had to get up in the morning with me and drive me through my route so I could deliver the papers. Um, he didn't know when he was, off, you know, when I was taking that job that he was going to have to work as much as I was. But I put it out on Facebook. I literally just asked, uh, what was your first job and, and how much did you get paid? Uh, and it just, people just started to reply. I think uh, there was over, over 40 or some responses, and some of them I'm going to share because they're worth sharing. Um, and, and, and I want you to think about how, how quickly we, we were able to recall what the job was and how much we got back. I mean, there was one person that worked for a private country club. Um, they could have been the one from California making $4.50 an hour. Like, that's, that's, you're rolling in some dough. Uh, Funk's Market got some, got some, got some play, $5.25 an hour. Um, Todd Mulder, picking peaches in the orchard for $3.70 an hour. Um, I quickly realized that it would have helped if my parents would have owned a business because there was quite a few people that got their first job uh, helping their parents, and then I quickly realized how much their parents took advantage of them. <laughs> poor, poor Nate Long. Um, 25 cents a case for putting labels on the horseradish jars. <laughs> Uh, there was some, some people who worked at the pool, parks, uh, grocery stores. Everybody at that point thought, thought you were making money, thought it was a, a good thing. Actually, one of my favorite responses that I got, and I'm only going to share it because I think it's, it's really worth, um, this person did three summers working as Mickey Mouse during the Disney traveling show out at Park City. Leslie Schmucker made $500 for a week's work, uh, which isn't too bad being Mickey Mouse, except being Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I had my paper route. That was how I got my start. And then my first real job, I was 15, I got a job working at Darren Camps. Um, I, my starting salary was 3.35 an hour, which I thought was not good until one of my friends replied to my post that he worked at Darren Camps, and his starting salary was $3 an hour, so I apparently made out better than he did. But think how, think how quickly we are to share those stories. This was my first job, and this is how much I got paid. Now let me ask you what you do now and what your income is. My wife told me I couldn't post that on Facebook. I couldn't ask that question. We, we don't like to talk about that. 
It already is. I can, I can feel it from where I'm standing. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, come on. This morning, we're, gonna, we're kind of getting into our third week of this, this short series on generosity. Ha! Huh. Money. Generosity. We're connecting dots. We began this series, though. We talked about the Father's generosity, right? God so loved the world that He gave. Right? He gave us His Son. The, whole, the gospel stems from God's generosity and God's love for us. And then last week we talked about the importance it, was, the importance it is to be generous with the gospel. Generous with the good news. You have this gift. You know this. And it's our job to share it. We should be overflowing with the good news. And so this week we add one more layer onto our discussion on generosity. And this is the week that we've all been waiting for. We can see how generosity carries into our view of money. So how often do you talk about money? I mean, do you find it difficult to speak about? If you do, you're not alone. Uh, Studies have now shown that, that money is the most difficult topic for people to discuss. We are more comfortable as a society to talk about Uh, to talk about politics and death and sex and religion than we are money. We are more comfortable telling people about Jesus than we are talking about money. I mean, you're never supposed to ask someone what they make. You're never supposed to ask somebody how much something costs. Right? If you get a gift, you're never supposed to say, that's nice, how much was that? I mean, we place a giant stigma on talking about money, and I probably will not change that this morning. You're not going to leave here this morning thinking, you know what, Woo, that's fixed. But I would like to challenge you in how we think about it and how we speak about money, and then how it shapes us. The view of the topic of money is it it doesn't need to be secretive. It doesn't need to be embarrassing. Uh, If you have your Bibles open this morning, I I would love for you to open them up to Luke chapter 16. Or if if there's a pew Bible in front of you, uh, you can use that as well. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. So Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start at verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Jesus told His disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know, that I, I know what I'll do. I, I, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into my houses. So, so he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. And then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. 
And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commend, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's probably a good place to start this morning that this is a, a fairly difficult passage. It's viewed as a, a difficult passage to work through. And some of that has to do with the subject that it's speaking about. Obviously, money, as we just spoke about, talked about, it, is difficult. Nobody wants to talk about it. So here we have a, a section of text that, that directly speaks to money. But that's not, all, that's not the only reason why it's misunderstood. A lot of people try to turn this parable into allegory. They try to speak into it or place into it things or, or people that they want or, or how they read into it or how they think it should go. And, and it begins to take, take shape of their own preference. And, and that's, that's, not, that's not what we really see here. What we really see here in the text this morning is a parable. It's a story told to illustrate a principle, to illustrate a moral attitude. And the first thing I want you to look at is who, is, is who Jesus is addressing. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Jesus told his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. We will assume that the Pharisees and the scribes are present. We actually can see that they're present. They're spoke about in chapter 15. And later on um, in chapter 16, he mentions them again. So the Pharisees and the scribes are there. He's already actually in, the, in, in chapter 15, he's already shared three parables speaking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes. But he now shifts directions and he now looks directly at the disciples and he speaks to them. And, and this is the parable that he shares with them. We would naturally assume that this is the parable that he would share with the Pharisees. Now, certainly the Pharisees, the scribes, and the other people that crowded around would eventually hear this and, and, and need to work through their own implications with it. But, but the words being addressed for the disciples, for his followers. So this particular man in this parable is wealthy. And by the amounts that are owed to him, would indicate that he is extremely wealthy. And, and this would explain why he has a steward, or, or your translation may say a manager. Right? And we're, we're, we're pretty familiar with the term manager, although not the same use of the word. In this context, a, a steward or a manager would have been a, a trusted servant. Even possibly someone who has grown up in this household. 
right? Someone that's been born into the home and now is in this position to di- distribute um, household provisions, food to the other servants, and also they're now managing, overseeing all of their master's resources. He, he acted on behalf of the master with his full authority under his master's name. So this manager, this steward, has, has authority over his owner's possessions and his business accounts. And in verse 1, we see here, this is where the trouble starts, right? He's accused of wasting his possessions. So, so the master calls him in. And he asks him, what's this I hear about you? What, what's this I hear that's going on? What do, you, what do you got cooking here? What, do you, what are you working on? Give an account to your management because you can't be a manager here any longer. I mean, he's being, he's being accused and, and charges are being brought against him. Right? The manager has been squandering. He's been wasting his Lord's, his master's provisions, his possessions, his property. And we're actually able to see this, this very same idea of, of squandering wealth in chapter 15. So if you look, just look over to chapter 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Right? We, we enter in the story of the prodigal son. This, this boy who, who requested, he, he demanded his, his share from his father, disrespected his father and took what, what wasn't his yet. And he squanders it off. He, he goes through, he burns through it and finds himself destitute and alone. His spending was, was foolish. Our story is a little different. He squanders. He's foolish with his spending. He, he, he too is spending what isn't his. But yet his response to the situation, how he fixes his situation, is much different than the prodigal son. Actually, we see here just how much authority he actually has and how much his master trusted him. The master confronts the manager, tells him that he, that he needs to give an account for this failed stewardship. He, he basically needs to clean out his locker, clean out his desk, and he's been fired. Well, the implications of that, he's not just losing his job, he's now losing his home, He has nothing now on the other side of this. But first, he has to explain what he's done. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been called into the boss's office. I mean, I've, I've worked my way through principal's offices, employer's offices. It's, it's never a good feeling. You, you automatically in the midst of that situation, become your own defense attorney. You begin to argue, you begin to justify, you begin to plead your case. Being told you no longer have employment is is horrible. Because there is no more arguing, there is no more justifying, there is no more pleading, the job is over. 
I've had some very difficult conversations with employees about termination in their employment during my years at Comcast. People respond differently to the news of their termination. And because of that, you try to control the situation the best way you can. Payday, Friday, end of the day, about an hour before everybody else is done. You sit down, you talk to them, you try to usher them out quietly without disrupting everything else. They already have their paycheck, so they don't need to come back. You're trying to avoid any kind of escalation or problems that are going to arise. What if you would call somebody in and tell them that you're eliminating their position, but you said to them, I'll tell you what, we still need you to work for the next three months for us. Like, if you wouldn't mind, could you just keep coming in and do your job? We'd appreciate it. How how do you think that goes? I mean, the employer now runs risk of, of the terminated employee hurting morale, right? Starting a coup, right? Encouraging others to do things alongside of them, stealing, and, and, and so much more. In this parable, the master shares his intention to fire the manager, which causes, as, as, as people have read and they have studied and they have worked through it, it, it makes people under the assumption that the manager just thought, his, or the master just thought his manager was incompetent, not necessarily somebody that would steal from him, which we see just shows a really poor understanding of who worked for him. Now the manager begins to question his career choices. What shall I do now, he says. Right, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. And by his own assessment here, he lacks the physical ability, he lacks the capability of of digging, right? Of unskilled labor. He almost kind of throws out any other kind of skill he has because he goes from, "I I can't dig, to, I can't beg either. There's no middle ground. It's either I can't and I can't. And, and begging is beneath his dignity. And, and that's when the light bulb goes off. That's when he has his aha moment. He, he says, I know what I'm going to do now. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. I got this figured out. So he calls each one of his master's debtors. He asks the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. And he replied to them, take, it, take your bill and, and make it 800. This isn't like crazy Larry's auto sales. This is, this is he is taking what isn't his and, and he's slashing prices, and he's cutting debt. He doesn't have the authority to do this. And he plainly states that he believes that these actions will result in his master's debtors becoming favorable to him so that they may provide a place for him to live and to work. The idea of home would have been more than just a physical house. It would have been this, this household, this, this place to belong, a job. 
Now, as you read this, there's, there's cultural factors that we need to look at, we need to think about, and, and the first has to do with, with, this, with this reducing the debt. John MacArthur actually writes this in his commentary. He says, Reciprocation was an integral part of Jewish society. If someone did a person a favor, that person was now obligated to do one for him. Right? I'm, I'm going to help you out. Because there's going to be a time where I'm going to need something from you. And then secondly, we can see, actually in Deuteronomy 23.19, the Mosaic Law actually explains how the Israelites, how the Jewish culture could, can work with other, each other in, in the context of interest. Verse 19 says, Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. That seems pretty straightforward, that you can't charge someone interest. And that's exactly what's going on in these stories. That person did not owe 900 gallons of oil. They owe 900 gallons because of the interest that was stacked on it. And the manager is just cutting that interest. Oftentimes, these business transactions would be carried out by the managers without the master's knowledge. Wink, wink. And this was to protect the master so that he couldn't be accused of breaking the law, right? I don't know what's going on. It's not me that's doing it. It's my servant. It's my manager. It's my steward. So it's no surprise that the debtors would be extremely happy to have their amount reduced and and, and even ultimately feel obligated to the manager. The large amounts that were being paid back also showed that, that these men were coming from pretty wealthy households themselves. So in light, of the, in light of these cultural insights, in light of what's going on here, we can see that the master's reaction may seem strange to us, but, but isn't so unusual in the context. In, in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Notice the, the praise is specific. He's specifically praising the manager for his shrewdness, for his shrewd actions. It's not necessarily praise for being unrighteous. He was outwitted, and, and he applauded the manager's wit. His admiration for the dishonest manager, his, his, his manager's genius, shows us that, that the master ultimately is a dishonest man himself. I mean, let's not forget about the interest that he's charging and his desire to keep his hands clean by having someone else do it for him. John MacArthur also wrote that it's the natural tendency of fallen hearts to admire a villain's craftiness. Brothers and sisters, we can see that all the characters in this parable are unjust, corrupt, dishonest. The debts were changed and the master could not prove that he was cheated. And he's, he's, the manager pra- is praised because of, of, of his actions and, and his desire to, to secure his future. And, and let's not forget that it all starts with, with the manager wasting his master's possessions. And the whole plot to eliminate debt 
would just add to the, the understanding that he was, he was guilty in all this. He never makes a defense. He never argues the charges. His response to being called in by the master and, and asked to explain was to begin to be dishonest and cut debt and try to find a place in another household. Now, he could have wasted more of his master's possessions. He could have enjoyed the last few days of being in the household. But instead, he made a plan to endear himself to other wealthy men and to make them feel obligated to him. He was not focused on the short term. He had a long-term plan. Which brings us to verse 8. In the second half, And the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. I mean, Jesus' comment here at the end of verse 8, the people of the world are much better at dealing shrewdly with each other than are the people of the light. Christians, followers. There's no ribbon being handed out for being unrighteous. Jesus is not commending the manager's behavior. We know that because he calls him dishonest. He's not rewarding him because of his behavior. Recognize that God is tolerant of people who are unrighteous, but he never praises people for their sin or their sinful behavior. Jesus' purpose in telling this story was to compare the prudence, the the wisdom of this worldly man in dealing with other worldly people. And he's comparing that with people of the light dealing with worldly people. The lesson is for his disciples to learn, for us to learn, that we need to be aware, we need to be astute at the way things are used in this world. It's a lesson on stewardship and the value of things. And it's all done, and it's all done through the lens of of, of future goals, through the, the eternity and not the immediate. So in the next four verses, Jesus draws three very distinct but related lessons for his disciples to hear. It's more than just, here's a parable for them to try to understand. He gives the parable, and now he's giving them three lessons for them to follow. First is the wise use of wealth. The importance of being faithful, and ultimately choosing the right master. In verse 9 he writes, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, it's easy to get a little turned around with this verse. But, but again, we have enough context to understand what Jesus is saying here, what He's speaking. It isn't about... It isn't about how much money you have. It isn't about getting as much money as you can so that you can enter into heaven. It, 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 it gets distorted and it gets skewed and it gets shaped where we begin to focus and people will begin to tell you that our wealth has something to do with our salvation in terms of getting our way in, 
gaining entrance into heaven. And, and this, is, this is a wrong interpretation. The only salvation we have is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Jesus Christ. Apple Pay is super cool, but it will not provide us with salvation. God's generosity. He gave us His Son, and His Son generously gave His life. This is not something we can buy. This is not something we can purchase. This is something we can receive. Jesus speaks of worldly wealth and and the use of it for making friends. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 6, Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Why, why are we to do this? We're not to do it for the purpose of gaining something from them in this life. While it was clever what the manager did, and, and that was clearly the manager's track, by earthly things, he, contacts and friends and employment, believers are to use their master's money in a way that will invest in friends for eternity. Investing in the kingdom that brings sinners to salvation. And this, this only happens in, in heaven. Welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus specifically refers to His Father's house in John chapter 14 as a place with many dwellings or, or many rooms. And He's gone to prepare a place for us, for His followers. It begins with the wealth of the world being used by the righteous to make friends. And it's the gospel that we proclaim to them, right? The good news that we share to them. They believe. They receive salvation. This is what happens when we're focused on eternity. And we don't need to be wealthy to be carrying this calling out. Let us not forget who He's speaking to. He's speaking to His disciples They were not rolling with deep pockets. It's simply just a matter of perspective about what is important and what is not. The the value of material wealth is small in God's eyes, and it should be small in ours too. Jesus promised to meet your physical needs as as we seek His kingdom and and seek righteousness. Right In in, in Matthew chapter 6, seek these things and they will be given to you. We only need to pray for our daily bread. We don't need to pray for provisions to come or I don't need to pray for my pantry to be stocked. God will meet all my needs daily. Now, it's wise to save and in Proverbs 13 to leave an inheritance for one's children's children. It's wise to work so you have something to share with others. Ephesians chapter 4. We are to use worldly wealth, no matter how large or how small, to make friends with the unsaved so that you can witness to them so that you may be generous with the good news and see them saved. And this is the part where I talk to you about the building campaign or speak to you about the checking account, right? We're waiting for that. Giving to the church and the missions may be a part of this, the emphasis here is to use your worldly riches to make friends with others that you will 
that you will one day see in eternity, that they will be able to welcome you into their, earth, or their eternal dwellings. See, it comes back to evangelism. God gave us His Son. Let me tell you about His generosity by showing you mine. Standing in, a, in, in front of a large group of people may, may frighten you, it often deters people to come up front and begin to, to teach or to preach. But you're not being called to, to open up God's Word in front of hundreds of people. You're, you're called to make a friend. To make friends. To talk to them about their lives. What they believe. To share with them the Gospel. Are you being generous with what you have so that you can do that? Are you shrewd with your generosity? Do you have in mind, is is your mindset on on things that are temporal, the things that won't last, or is your mindset on things that are eternal? Verses 10 through 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of their own? Jesus repeats this idea of this lesson a few times and in multiple ways to emphasize it. And then He applies it to use our worldly riches, our worldly wealth, for eternal purposes. It's a simple premise, right? Whatever you do with things on a small scale, you will ultimately do on a larger scale true whether whether he's it's true whether you're, you're being faithful to god or whether you're being unrighteous if you do it on a small scale you'll do it on a larger scale as well faithfulness is is a character trait and so is unrighteousness to use your worldly wealth it, it, and how you use it reveals your character whether you're faithful or whether you're unrighteous and, and Jesus makes these points in, in other parables. We, we can see them in Matthew and we can see them in, in Luke. And, and the points are all the same. Those who demonstrate that they were faithful with what they had and what they were given were entrusted with more. Those who proved to be faithful with little were entrusted with much. Those who proved to be unfaithful have it taken away. I mean, trust is built upon the demonstration of faithfulness, which in turn results to having even more given to or more entrusted to. Think about this in in terms of children. I typically think in terms of children. When a child's learning how to walk, when they're first learning how to take their steps, and, and they're wobbling around and stumbling, what does every parent do? They hover over them, trying to protect them, trying to keep them from banging into something. Well, eventually they run. So the parent tells them, you can only go as far as I can see you. Don't run around the corner. I can't see you over there. You have to stay where I can see you. Well, well soon enough they're, they're driving. Well, let me know when you leave. Let me know when you get there. And then you're waiting up at home until they arrive. And then they move out or they go to college and you see them less and You're no longer waiting up. My mom does not wait up for me anymore. I mean, there's a progression. If the trust is not there, 
you're, you're never setting that child down to walk. If the trust is not there, you're, you're not letting them run away from you. They're going to have to stand by your side. If the trust is not there, there's no way you're driving my car. And the opposite's true. Failure and faithfulness over little things just begins to destroy and erode trust so that there's even less of, of, of what's being entrusted. The worldly riches we have are of little value. But faithfulness in those small things enables us to receive true riches. Faithful use of our earthly wealth will result in the accumulation of treasure in heaven. Don't allow this section, these verses, to get skewed by telling you that you deserve so much more. That, you, that, that God will bless you with that new car or that new wardrobe or whatever other things that we want because I'm, I'm faithful to the car that I have. No, it just says that He will trust with true riches. Huh. That's what we'll be striving for. And then finally, the, the third lesson He shares here is choosing the right master. Jesus concludes all this with a warning. You cannot serve two Masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Have you ever had two people telling you what to do at the same time? <laughs> Most children know what that's like. I, I came in the house the other day, and Jess was sitting in the living room with a couple of her children, and she had one of her dogs, Gus, and they were teaching Gus to sit. So there you had three people or four people all with treats in their hands and all go and sit. Come here, sit, sit. Poor Gus. Gus was a little, Gus is normally confused, but Gus was really confused. He, and he ultimately really couldn't obey anybody. And Jesus makes it plain that you will either serve God or the things of this world, money. You, you can't serve both because the world is opposite, the world is competing against, and the world is on the opposite end of God. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, If you walk by the Spirit, you cannot carry out the desires of the flesh, for they are in opposition of each other. Brothers and sisters, if you love God, you will cling to Him, and you will be concerned about His interest, in which case, the things of this world will become increasingly unappealing, disinteresting, to the point where you, you'll begin to hate, you'll begin to despise them. But for those who love the world and the things in it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, over, over all this, this boastful pride that we have of life, well, they'll hate God. They'll despise His commandments because of the evil desires that they cling to. I mean, we see the evidence of this all around us in our society and that, that turns from God and, and runs to its own lusts. I mean, we see this in our own lives. I mean, countless times a day we see this in our own lives 
where we know God is commanding us to live different, but we love the satisfying taste of our own desires. Now make no mistake that Jesus is not speaking in vague terms here. We like to make this passage vague. He's speaking about money. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, they would have been teaching that the love of money and the love of God were compatible, that they would work together. Right? The idea of those who have been blessed with riches, well, they're God's favorites. They work together. But this is not true. And, and Jesus speaks very clear about it. He doesn't, it's, it's not hard to understand You cannot serve both God and money. This one's not cloudy. It's not vague. It is clear. We just choose to make it vague. The parable itself can seem strange and and even misleading, but the lessons that it teaches are still fairly simple. The dishonest manager was praised for being shrewd because he used his position to further the long-term goals instead of satisfying the short-term desires that he had. Christians should be even more shrewd by using their wealth of this world that has no eternal value in order to pursue things that have true eternal value. Use your material riches to make friends. Imagine. Friends. Friends with non-Christians, so you can share the gospel with them. And and it's a matter of of shrewd generosity. You You don't own it anyway. You're only borrowing it just for the few years that you're here on this earth. We need to use the things of this world with an eternal future in mind. We need to see eternity instead of just the immediate present and the satisfaction that we get. Those who choose to try and walk the line between godliness and worldliness learn that it's impossible. You're either going to increase your love for God and become repulsed by the world or you're going to love the world and increasingly reject God. We get uncomfortable when we speak about money because the world around us, it it tells us that we're supposed to be polite and not talk about it. But maybe the world doesn't want you to talk about it because it so clearly demonstrates our character and our love or lack of love for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful and thankful, uh, Father, for your word this morning. Uh, We thank you that we have... uh, We have parables to read. We have uh, dialogue to read. We have stories to learn from, Father, that we have your living word in our hands. Father, will we refuse to to take that for granted? Will we continue to look to that? Will we continue to open that up and have our lives changed by what we see? Father, we recognize the difficulty it is in in discussing money or or to think about uh, the world and and how we can use our wealth to, to bring people to Christ. Father, we'd rather see our, our own wealth or the things that, that we work hard for to, to gather up and to get the things that we desire. Father, would you, would you change us? Would you make us different? Would we look to use our, our, our wealth, 
the resources that we have? Would, we, would our desire be to advance the gospel? Father, that the, that the rest would just fall away. Father, I ask that you change my heart in that. I ask that you work through our hearts as a congregation. That your kingdom, this world, this community, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our homes would look different because we love you and we hate everything else. Father, I ask that you just continue to be with us as we worship you. Father, as we prepare to take communion at your table, uh, continue to work in us, Father. Make us clean. And we recognize that this is only possible because of your Son. Oh, we love, we love Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.